Hello there, and welcome to the Movies in Focus podcast. I'm Niall Brown. In this podcast episode, film director Andrew Davis talks about his long and prestigious career. Best known for directing the hugely successful blockbuster The Fugitive with Harrison Ford, Davis's career has been as eclectic as it has been successful. From his jazz-fused 1978 debut, Stony Island, through to The Package with Gene Hackman and Under Siege with Steven Seagal, to A Perfect Murder with Michael Douglas and Gwyneth Paltrow and the beloved screen adaptation of Holes, Davis has delivered across nearly all genres. He has also worked with some of Hollywood's biggest names, with the likes of Kevin Costner, Keanu Reeves, Sigourney Weaver, Morgan Freeman and Arnold Schwarzenegger being added to the aforementioned roster. This relaxed and candid discussion covers the length and breadth of Andrew Davis's career. And as always, I really hope you enjoy what we have to talk about. Are you in Dublin? Um, I'm just I'm about an hour from Dublin, halfway between Dublin and Belfast. So uh, ah. I'm, uh, yeah, a, a, different, a way different time zone than you. Yeah, I bet. Well, thank you for joining me today. Thank you. And it must be strange for you. It's sort of 45 years since Stony Island, 30 years since The Fugitive. Which celebrating? I mean, it's it's also twenty four holes, isn't it? So you've got a, a a host of anniversaries. Oh yeah, I'm lucky that my children keep having birthdays, <laughs> and they're great children as well. Let's go back to the very start with Stony Island, and we'll kind of bring our way up. But I watched it a few weeks ago, and I loved it. Um, oh. It was. It was so refreshing. I know it's a 45-year-old film, but it felt so refreshing, you know, with, with the way movies are today. And I loved the atmosphere. I loved the music. I loved the fact that it, it felt so cold. <laughs> take, take me back to making it and how it came about. When, when did the commitments come out? Do you remember? Oh, I think about 92, 93, something along like those lines. Much later, much later, yeah. yeah. So, so uh, well... I wanted to make a film about my growing up. I had seen uh, Mean Streets and uh, American Graffiti and those big shot directors who, who made their first films like that, you know. So I figured out, I'll, I'll make a film about where I grew up. And I thought the story of my brother growing up in this black neighborhood, because my parents had refused to move when the neighborhood changed and his becoming successful as a musician was, it was a good story. And <clears throat> so we... I met a woman named Tamara Hoffs who had a brother who had gone through similar experiences, falling in love with the blues and the great players from Chicago. And uh, we collaborated on the screenplay and then uh, started trying to figure out how to raise the money. In those days, there weren't that many independent movies. I think the year we made Stony Island, there were six independent movies in the United States. You get 6,000 independent movies downloaded every day to YouTube. Yeah. You know. So, so the fact that it's easier to shoot a movie now because you get a little camera, you know, you can cut it on your laptop, you know. So that's that. It was a different time. So we spent a lot of time trying to figure out how to raise money legally, and uh, and we put it together. It was a very small budget. It was three hundred thousand dollars to make that movie, and uh, struggled to figure out how to get a great cast and great musicians. And we put a band together literally in two weeks. And that that was the movie, you know, and and it it, it got incredible reviews. It played, it won won festivals, and it got all kinds of amazing reviews, as good as The Fugitive back then. And uh, 
And so it launched my career and the careers of Susanna Hoffs, who later started the Bengals, Dennis Franz, who became a big TV star, all kinds of people, including my brother, who became a, a well-known musician in Chicago now. He's got a band that's been together 30 years and doing really well. Yeah, I mean, the music is brilliant. Um, was that all written for the, the movie? Were that were they jam sessions or how did they all how did that come about? Well, there are a few songs that we got the rights to that were either written by some of the people in the movie. Uh, some of the rhythm section had just done Natalie Cole's first album. Right. And, and so Tennyson Stevens and Larry Ball wrote a song, but Stoney Robinson and Carmi Simon wrote some of the other songs. And we we and it's got this kind of gritty quality to it because it's about struggling to put a band together and, and find, finding material. I've made comments, you know, the commitments had the money to buy the rights to some big hits that were well known. I didn't have that kind of money. Yep. So we had to make up our own. But I think that's part of the integrity of the movie. You know, it's not perfectly uh, uh, <laughs> conceived and, 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 and it's, it's basically it's the struggle of how to get the sound to come out. Well, that's it. I mean, I think if it had have been big hits, you'd be like, oh, they're just playing a cover version where it really does sound like a band jamming together and finding that sound. And I love the sound. It's I'm a big fan of 70s Paul Simon, and it's kind of got that sort of bluesy sort of rhythm going on. It's interesting because um, uh, the bass player, Larry Ball, went to work for Paul Simon after Stony Island. Right. <laughs> my my hearing's not that bad. Smokey Robinson after that, you know, so, so um, anyway, it was, it was, it was, it was a struggle. It was cold. We didn't have a lot of money, but everybody was, was young and devoted to trying to make the movie. And I was very grateful about that. And it was, it became, like I say, a launching pad for my career and others. Well, that's, I mean, one of the, the great things about it is the cinematography, Tak Fujimoto's sort of visuals. And I mean, he's shot two films that I really love, which really get across cold, which is Silence of the Lambs and The, the Sixth Sense. Um, when you're making a film where it absolutely looks freezing, how, how, how does that work for an independent film? And how does that, how does that help the, the visual look of that film? Well, you can't fake that, you know, the stuff coming out of people's mouths, you know. And, and you know, it's Stony Island is, if you look at my other films, I mean, it's a template for the fugitive visually. Yep. I was going to get to that, but yeah. <laughs> yes, and Tack, Tack and I were both uh, students and protégés of Haskell Wexler, who was another Chicagoan who made films with a very realistic look. As if you look at Mate One, one of it, he was nominated for that. I don't think he had a whole a great film about the John Sales made about coal mine disaster and a strike. Um, anyway, so, so we, you know, we just... We just kept shooting the way we wanted to shoot. We tacked was on one camera, I was on the other. We picked locations that had a kind of look and a natural light to them. And, uh, you know, we shot all the music in 12 days live. It was all recorded, none of it's dubbed, it's all live. And so, um, you know, the, the coldest, actually the coldest movie I ever shot was uh, uh, Chain Reaction with Morgan Freeman and Keanu and Rachel Weisz. That was really cold. So I, I keep going back to Chicago in the winter, you know. Is, is that on purpose or is that coincidence? Well, it depends on the story, but I mean, it certainly helps give you the sense of grit and, and, and tension. The package, you know, uh, The Fugitive, Chain Reaction, those are all cold weather movies. Stony Island. 
that's I mean, and one question which sort of feeds into kind of what we're talking about, the cold and the weather and the visuals, which is there's there's a sequence where your brother is trying to follow the window cleaner um, to get him to play. Uh, is it saxophone? Right. And it, it's almost a chase sequence, which reminded me very much of the French Connection. <laughs> what was that an inspiration or is that just me reading into it? Well, he's running. He, he's he's chasing the L. He runs under the yeah. L. With French Connection. Friedkin's from Chicago, by the way. He, right. And so, so all that stuff under the L. He did in New York, but um, certainly uh, French Connection had a big impact on me. The grittiness, the reality. I wanted working with Hackman later on. Uh, Friedkin and I had some communication together, you know, and and he was. It was a it, the, the the gritty honesty of that movie impressed me along with Sidney Lumet or Norman Jewis and those are directors that I felt had this kind of honest texture his social comment to make so so that did have an influence yeah I mean I I love I, I I'll sort of talk to anyone about sort of 70s cinema and how sort of great it looked and visually and how, how things went downhill when it became kind of sort of slick in the the 80s as it sort of it went on but you, you look at those great 70s films you know like Friedkin stuff Parallax View, Three Days of the Condor, you know, the, the, those movies all look fantastic. Well, I don't know what, where 70, the word seven and eight changes things, you know what I mean? You know, I didn't, I, the stuff I did in the 80s, like, you know, Code of Silence, Above the Law, The Package, those those films had a kind of continued 70s grid, if you'll call it. Yeah, they're, they're not as slick as... I don't know maybe something like Beverly Hills Cop or something. There's there's a, a kind of even the the fugitive. I think it, it, did you just say visual honesty, but that's the sort of the the, the thing about it. You know, yeah. I I really like that. Which how do you go from making something like Stony Island, which is a, a drama and a musical, to becoming an action director? How how does how does that happen to somebody? Well, it was, it was sort of was sort of by you know I had, I had shot like fourteen films before that as a cameraman. Right, I was director of photography struggling to get in the union and sort of I made Stony Island out of frustration not being able to get in the union to shoot features for the for the directors who are now going on the studio films um so uh repeat the question how do you go from making Stony Island to becoming yeah, okay. a director so I so I made so I made I made Stony Island and uh there was a film being made called Beat Street about breakdancing, and Harry Belafonte saw Stony Island and loved it. And he hired me to direct and write Beat Street. And and sadly, after 15 days, there was no music ready. Harry had been on tour, and the music for the movie wasn't ready, which I had arranged a bunch of really great music with Shaka Khan and Herbie Hancock, that the producer of the music, a guy named Arthur Biggins, said, no, I want all the publishing. And anyway, Harry could not say to the studio, I was on tour, doing Deo in Sweden. I didn't take care of the music. So they said, well, we get another director because, well, you know, we need a black director. Anyway, the the footage was really good that I had shot at Beat Street. Mike Metaboy and Orion saw the footage and said, there's nothing wrong with this footage. They shouldn't fire this guy. We're going to offer him a Chuck Norris movie. So I fell out of the window with a three-month-old baby I just we had just had, and I was offered a Chuck Norris movie. So I became an action director after being fired on on Beat Street, and and Beat Street has a lot of me in it. You know, I, I cast it, and 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 a lot of the stuff that's in there is from our 15 days of shooting. So I became an action director, sort of by default. And when Code of Silence was a was a hit, 
Steven Seagal saw it. As Michael Ovitz was his agent. Yeah, I want this guy to direct above the law. I had no idea who he was. You know, all, it just sort of evolved. Well, that's, I mean, you, you at, at that point, was sort of, you, you created Steven Seagal in a sense where you, you sort of had, you know, above the law or Nico, as, as it was known, where, where, where I come from. And then you, you went on to do Under Siege. Well, and, I did, I did the, well, I did the package in between some yeah. other things. Yes. But yes. For, for Seagal, I mean, that, that was sort of, and Under Siege was his sort of breakthrough into the mainstream, you know, even though he was hugely successful, sort of with, with those thrillers was sort of a different realm. What was it like working with him? Because I know he's, he's got a reputation for being sort of awkward, <laughs> but you, you worked with him twice. So you must have sort of got along well with him. Well, the first time was easy. You know, he wasn't he wasn't so arrogant and didn't have this big name. And and we agreed politically on on what was going on with Iran Contra and and what was going on with the country and the CIA duplicitous action that he supposedly had in his background. You know, so uh, under siege was 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 a different world. You know, Tommy Lee Jones was in the movie more than Steven Seagal. And you know, and in that movie that Harrison saw that movie with Tommy, that became The Fugitive. So I owe, in some ways, I owe Steven Seagal getting me The Fugitive because of the success of Under Siege. That's, and I mean, you you worked with, you, you mentioned The Package as well with, with, with Gene Hackman and, and Tommy Lee Jones, which is another great movie. Um, Thank you. Sort of, again, what's it like working with Gene Hackman, who is one of the great actors that sort of Hollywood's ever produced, and Tommy Lee Jones, another great actor who was sort of on the rise at that point. What was what was that what, that like? Well, it was tough. Uh, Gene was, you know, was a was an old salty actor. He didn't want to talk to some young action director too well. You know, I I had to learn to sort of step back and let him find his way for each scene and each set and everything. And uh, and I remember it was funny because he. He wanted to cut a bunch of lines and Tommy said, what's he cutting my lines for? You know, you screwed with my kids. There's a little tension there, you know, but it worked out. It's, 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 a, it's, it's, it's interesting because I, I, I just finished a novel with a guy named Jeff Biggers. We worked together called Disturbing the Bones, and it's going to be coming out next summer, a political thriller. And a lot of it is the themes of, of the package. Right. It has to armament and what would happen if if the world said we got to get rid of all the nukes who would be opposing that what would happen with the russians the chinese the americans in terms of the generals and who would want to give up their weapons you know so so um i learned a lot from gene i mean just how to give give an actor space and uh you know i was very lucky to have been around him that's i mean as a director you 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 went from the independent realm you were, you were, you started doing a a film that you sort of you were let go from. Then you start working with Chuck Norris, who I'd imagine is a is a major presence in reality. Tommy Lee Jones, Gene Hackman. I mean, you 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 never made it easy for yourself. <laughs> well, Chuck was Chuck was easy to work with. You know, right. he was he was very supportive, and you know, we I got to sort of you know, Dennis Farina's in that movie. He was still a cop at yeah. the time. Right. And so just surrounding him with real people gave him a reality that he didn't have before. And so so that was that was fun to do. And uh, the success of Code of Silence, of course, led to this whole Warner Brothers relationship with Seagal, you know, and then and then other movies. I did five movies for Warner Brothers, you know. 
that must be nice to have a home as as a film director. Is is that good? Sort of knowing that you've got a studio that you, you know the inner workings of. Well, I I think I went away and I did a movie uh, outside of Warner's before, after in between there, but. Yeah, no, I I had a great relationship with Terry Semmel and Bob Daly, you know, and 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 Peter McGregor Scott was the producer who came on Under Siege, and then Peter and I, of course, did a bunch of movies together, and uh, so yeah, it was terrific to have. It's all different now. It's a completely yeah. different. The very there's only a couple people left at Warner Brothers that I know from the old days, but there's still a, a commitment, and I'm glad that they're celebrating the hundredth anniversary with the Fugitive. Well, which we'll co we'll come on to the fugitive now. I mean, like I said, Under Siege, a huge hit, um, sort of launches Seagal, like I said, into a different realm, and suddenly you are given the the fugitive, which was a big movie for the studio at that point when everyone was remaking TV shows. Sort of that that was sort of at that point in Hollywood in the nineties. Sort of sixties TV was being made for the big screen. So how did how did the fugitive come into your life? Um, well, at the premiere of Under Siege, Arnold Copelson, the producer of The Fugitive, came up to me and said, I think I know your next movie. And I I didn't know Arnold, and I didn't know what he was talking about. And two days later, I got a call from Bruce Berman, the head of the studio, the head of production at the studio. He said, congratulations. And I said, why? He said, well, Harrison saw Under Siege over the weekend. He wants to meet with you to talk about doing The Fugitive. I think what happened was the studio said to Copelson, think about Davis, get Harrison to see it. And that's what happened. So, so I was very lucky, but I was handed a script that didn't make any sense. And I, and so I, I had to figure out how to not lose the gig in Harrison and the support of the studio because of Under Siege and make a movie that made sense to me. So I, you may have heard the story. My sister was a nurse. And I called her up. I said, Joe, Josie, what can get a doctor in trouble? And she came back a couple of days later, having talked to a, a resident. So, so um, uh, there was a drug protocol that was was not going well. And so they had to shut up this, this, this doctor who was dissonant, you know? And so that became the basis of the plot. Uh, and, and my dear producer, Peter McGregor Scott, we created a, a company around his name called Devil and McGregor, Devil and McGregor. <laughs> uh, and, and then the drug was called Provasic. And so that became the basis of the whole plot and motivation between the, the, the you know, the pharmaceutical company trying to get rid of Harrison as a critic. And I mean, it's such a great, I mean, in an era where everything's sort of just explosions, that is a very almost, it's almost like a spy movie plot, you know, with a subterfuge and, and that, that, that sort of basis, which is a really good thread for all the characters, including, I mean, we will talk, we'll talk spoilers here because I presume everyone's seen it, but, you know, where, where he's, he's betrayed by his best friend and, you know, he's lost his wife. I mean, building the layers of that with, sort of the, the medical background and the, the, the characterization. Is that a tricky process when you're, you're dealing with a star like Harrison Ford and all those elements? Well, it's a, Harrison being a star didn't, wasn't the issue. The question was the complexity of the plot and what the evidence was going to be that makes him figure out who switched the samples and who, who framed who and when the guy who was supposed to do the samples died and somebody else wrote the, the reports. You know, it's a complicated story. And yet, 
it comes somehow it makes sense and comes together you know yeah it makes so i mean i watched it about five six months ago and i mean every couple of years i watched the fugitive so i'm a fan but it's amazing how well it holds up and that every little bit feeds into something else and it works as a brilliant piece you know all the elements work thank you Thank you. Well, I appreciate. It. I hope you get a whole get a chance to get the the new 4K Blu-ray and watch it on a good monitor. Yep. No, I've I've got a nice big TV and I'm going to get the Blu-ray because it, it's an old DVD I've been watching, so uh, it's time for an upgrade. <laughs> I appreciate it. I should get get Warner's to send you one. Well, <laughs> I, I think I'll, I'll fork out the cash. I think I, it, it's 20 years since I probably got the other one. And in fact, I actually paid money to watch The Fugitive when it came out, sort of 30 years ago. So. You've, uh, you've you've definitely got a fast. I must say, I have an affinity for 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 Ireland for a lot of reasons. First off, from Chicago, which is almost an Irish city, with Mayor Daly. Sure, he sent a lot of money for the IRA. But anyway, uh, <clears throat> um, my son went to medical school at the Royal College of Surgeons in Dublin. Right. Yes. And so, so we were over there a couple of times, and I appreciated it very much. Yeah, no, Ireland, I mean, Dublin's beautiful. I'm actually from Derry, which is in the Northwest, which right. I, I always tell people, go there for a, a nice sort of four or five days. Brilliant, if the weather's good. <laughs> it all depends on the weather. Yeah. And well, speaking of Ireland, there's that St. Patrick's Day sequence in, in the middle of The Fugitive. And that was happening on the day you were filming. That wasn't planned. That was a real... No, well, what happened? We, you know, we shot the chase through City Hall, you know, in 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 the in the bulletproof glass, and and you know Harrison escaping, and we needed to, you know, Tommy wasn't going to give up then. We had to figure out how he wasn't going to do a French Connection chase after that, you know. Yeah. So I had wanted to put, if you look at Stony Island, Mayor Daly's funeral is in that. I wanted yeah. that to be St. Patrick's Day parade, but he died. So. So he shot his funeral. So years and years later, I said, ah, why doesn't Harrison run out into the plaza right by the Picasso there, you know, the big city hall plaza and uh, and get lost in the St. Patrick's Day parade. So, so I don't know what the schedule was. It was in within a window of when we were downtown and we got permission from the city and from the plumbers. And, you know, they didn't even know we were there. We were invisible. We just run around with a steady cam, and Harrison grabs a hat out of a garbage can and puts it on. You know, it was it was it was done on the fly, literally. Yeah, and uh, I mean, for years I've always thought that looked like very much like a real parade, and to find out that it was, it was sort of a yes, that makes sense because it's it's got that you know realism to it. Yeah, and it is a real parade. As a matter of fact. I think they're re-releasing the movie domestically. They're going to be playing it in theaters and using St. Patrick's Day Parade as a kind of launching connection. Right. <laughs> and an extra marketing tool for it? That's what they said. I mean, what, what's it like when the movie comes out? I, you know, you were, I've read that it was sort of, you know, there, there were, it was difficulty sort of cutting it together and, and making it work. And like we said, it, it works perfectly. When it came out, it was a huge hit, you know, one of the biggest hits of the year. Were you expecting the success of that? Well, you never can, you know, you never know how how a film's going to resonate until you really start seeing it with people. Um, I, we didn't have trouble putting it together with just a time crunch. We, we The film was cut and put together in eight weeks, which was unheard of. Unheard of. And that's because Peter McGurger said was a genius in post-production. I was like a dentist going from 
editing room to editing room. It was all cut on film. There was no digital cutting in those days. Um, uh, so, you know, I, I showed James Newton Howard a couple cut reels when we were, after we'd done the train crash and a few sequences. And, and I was watching with him in Chicago. Uh, and I said, I said, you know, this could really resonate with grandmothers and their grandchildren. I mean, it, it had a four quadrant quality to it because you cared about Harrison. Yep. He was the biggest star in the world, you know. So I knew that there was a possibility of it. We were so busy just trying to finish the film. And then once we had these test screenings and the numbers went through the roof, we showed it to the studio and they said, don't touch it. Don't, don't make any changes. Leave it. And we made 1,700 changes after that just because <laughs> things and stuff. But um, uh, it, was, it, it was pretty clear soon after we started putting it together that it was going to resonate. And I know they went on to make a sort of a follow-up to it, but presumably they wanted lightning to strike, strike twice. So they did they come to you and Harrison to go, we want Fugitive 2 still running or whatever they, they were? Well, it was, he, you know, I was off doing A Perfect Murder when they did the Marshall movie. Uh, and it was the same producer in the same studio, actually. So they, they, they went to another director and they tried to figure out how to take Tommy and use him as to create another kind of template, I guess, figure they could save some money, not having to pay Harrison what he had to pay. But, um, uh, you know, I, I, it didn't seem to resonate as much as The Fugitive, certainly. That's because it's not as good. <laughs> um, you, you've, you've mentioned A Perfect Murder there, which is another film I think is great, I, I, which you, you remade a Hitchcock movie. How... What's it like to go to somebody, I'm remaking Hitchcock? You know, the, how did that feel? Well, first, of all, the, I, first of all, I wasn't a big Hitchcock fan, okay? Uh, because when I used to watch those movies, I knew that they were phony. They were, you know, he wasn't standing outside on a ledge ready to fall off. It was the process. He, there was something about the photography and the cinema that didn't, it didn't have that realism of European films. So it sort of kept me a little bit away. Now, a perfect dial-in for murder was not a, it was a play that was adapted. It was just like a one set play, you know, and it had, a, they think they shot it in, in 3D or Technoscope or Technicolor or something. I don't know, it, the camera hardly moved. So it wasn't like visually I was challenged to match with the genius of Hitchcock, you know. Yep. And Pat Kelly just wrote a very a compelling thriller. And so, you know, was, uh, my concern was I was going to New York to make the film and uh, I wanted, you know, I'd used Chicago so well and, and I wanted to make sure that New York, the texture of New York was part of it. And I, and I think we, we, we captured that. That's it. I mean, I, I love when Michael Douglas plays a villain. He's, he's one of the few sort of leading men that can sort of switch sort of between hero and villain. And he, he's just, he's great in that movie. Yeah, no, it was good. I, I loved working with Vigo and Michael and, and Gwyneth's gifted actress. I mean, you know, it was it, it was it was quite wonderful to work with them. Well, sir, and that, was, that must have been Vigo Mortensen's one of his last films before he did Lord of the Rings or he's sort of at least mainstream movies. So he then went on to a sort of a, a different sort of level in his career as well. Yeah. And he's taken chances. He's made he's made a lot of small independent movies and, you know, he's. He's 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 a wonderful guy. He's very he's very committed to doing what he thinks is right. 
And you again stayed on. I think you then made uh, collateral damage with Warner Brothers as well, which was supposed to come out before nine eleven or just after nine eleven, and it was delayed. Was that there were rumors at the time that was all reshot, or a lot of it was reshot or tweaked or edited? Is that true? Well, no. What happened? No, what happened was, if you look at the footage, the tragic footage of, of people fleeing nine eleven. In the background is a poster of Schwarzenegger on right. a building. It was supposed to open that weekend. And they pulled it because he's a fireman. You know, he was a, about a fireman. And the, the sad part, we were considering shooting in New York. And I scouted New York and I went to all these fire stations and photographed, I'm sure, many of the firemen who vanished in 9-11. You know, so it, it was very, very touchy to, to, to have a movie about a terrorist event and fireman and his family. So they, they delayed it several months. And then of course it, it hurt the release of the movie. But um, you know, that that story was originally set in the Middle East. Right. It was another, you know, Arab bashing movie. And 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 I didn't want to do that. And I said, well let's, you know, I'd done a film in Colombia and I was interested in the dynamics of what was happening in Colombia with FARC and trying to have a revolution of some sort down there. So that's how we adapted. And I thought, who better than to, to play a guy who, who loses his family in a terrorist event, who realizes the terrorism that was going down there with the support of the CIA? Yeah, and I think a great underrated movie. You know, I, th I think, and Schwarzenegger, I think his performance is very good in it. You know, people mm -hmm. sort of knock him as an actor, but I think he's very good in it. No, he's very good in it. Yeah, and you know, the, the ending, the, you know, I was asked to, to put some more gruesome stuff with a snake and all that kind of stuff and it was one of the few things that compromised i made you know for one of the executives well you need something that people can talk about you know well have guys that eat a snake you know and then well you went on speaking of, of snakes you went on to make holes which has become a sort of perennial classic and i was somebody who was an english teacher for for a few years ah. and I, I i taught holes and your, your film was something that i constantly showed the kids you know oh, after, after we read the, the novel yeah thank you well that was a that came to me through uh, uh teresa tucker davies she read this book she knew i was didn't want to be pegged as an action director and um uh, you know, it was it was a wonderful novel. It had all these elements of, of caring and race and all kinds of stuff, exploitation of kids. And so um, we called Lewis Sacker up and, you know, he was, the I think the Coen brothers were interested in it and Rob Reiner were interested in it. And I think the reason Lewis chose us to do it is because he felt that would keep it real and keep it sort of gritty and tough. And uh, the only change I asked him to make is that, you know, the novels to be loved, and I didn't want to tamper with that, was I added grandpa, because my, my great grandmother lived with us for a short time before she died in this tiny apartment in Chicago. And, uh, and so my dad, <clears throat> Nate Davis, uh, plays grandpa, who wasn't in the novel. And Lewis accepted that. <laughs> Excuse me. And my father, uh, he's, he's the guy who says, oh, because you're dirty, you no know, rotten pig stealing great, great grandparents. That's my father. He <laughs> was a, a well-known actor. He was, uh, was on Broadway in the Tony Award-winning company of Grapes of Wrath with Gary Sinise and 
And he also, did you ever see a movie called Thief with Michael Mann's movie Thief? Yes, great film, yes. Well, he's the old guy who shows Jimmy Conn how to bust into the safe. Right. <laughs> That's my father. I'm going to so, have to go back and watch that now, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So, so he's the old grandpa in, in, in Holes. So, so Holes was a real change in terms of making a family movie and it had layers layers of mystery and history and and it was a it was it was wonderful to make that movie yeah and such a great cast in it as well fantastic cast yeah shia's first movie and and tim blake nelson and eartha kitt all kinds of people and i've just to, to, to wrap up now i have to ask why have you not made another film since the guardian why 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 have we not had an andrew not had another andrew davis hollywood movie since 2006 is it yeah, well, that's a big question. Uh, uh, for a lot of reasons, uh, I was offered a lot of dumb action movies, which I didn't want to make. Um, you know, I, I got, I got, I think the studio, you know, it was interesting because The Guardian was the highest scoring movie in the history of Touchstone. Right. It was a, it was a 98. And then it didn't perform as well as they, you know, he wound up making its money back, but it didn't, you know, it should have been a much bigger hit. Ashton, Ashton Kutcher, Bob Iger, the head of the studio, saw he thought he was going to be a big action star. Yeah. And for some reason, people thought, you know, he's Demi Moore's husband, you know, and he's not really the real deal. And Costner was not, hadn't, hadn't done his television stuff at that point, right? Anyway, I'm proud of that movie. And uh, I was offered, a, you know, a lot, of, a lot of stuff that I didn't want to do. And a lot of stuff was going on. My parents were passing. My children were getting married and having kids. And so it was a lot of, and I started writing and uh, developing different things on my own. I figured I'd rather develop my own stuff than wait for the studio to hand me something that I really want to do. I didn't go to see a lot of movies that were being made after The Guardian where I said, well, God, I wish I would have done that. I wish I would have done that. It became the world of, of superheroes and action and, and ultra violence, you know, and I, and I didn't, you know, I think after Holes, I didn't want violence to be the entertainment. I didn't want to do a movie where it was, wasn't it cool how Steven Seagal broke that guy's arm. Which is you the know? fair point, yeah. You know, so I think that it had a combination of, uh, of Hollywood saying, we don't want to pay this guy the kind of money he's gotten in the past, you know, to do this smaller movie or whatever. And I was rejecting some of the action movies. So, it's you know it's it's been okay because I've been able to spend more time with my family and develop things and I hope that I'll get I hope to make a few more movies and uh, hopefully in the next couple of years we'll get one off the ground. Well, I personally can't wait to see it. As I've just said for the last half an hour, I've been a big fan of your work, sort of from all all of the movies you've made. I'm looking forward to your your novel coming out next summer, so I, I can't wait to read that. I kind of say. Andrew, it's been an absolute joy to talk with you today. It's been brilliant just going through your career. Well, thank you. I appreciate your interest and your, your knowledge about it. And I'd like to know more about you. So keep in touch, okay? Definitely, yes. Um, yeah, you've got my email. I've got yours. So uh, if there's anything you want to talk about in the future, um, any films that are anniversaries or drop me a well, line. If, if people go to andrewdavisfilms.com. They can watch uh, The Making of Stony Island, which is a documentary with Chuck D and, and Quincy Jones. And uh, and then Steel Biggs on there and a bunch of other movies. And, and they can watch Stony Island there. Or Stony Island is available on all kinds of platforms if you want to watch it. 
I will share the links online and let everyone know that it's available and that it's a great movie. Bye-bye. Bye. I hope you've enjoyed this episode of the Movies in Focus podcast. You can download it wherever you get your podcasts, and I hope that you tell your friends about it. That's it for this time, and I'll see you at the movies.